Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. In this season three, we're looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And I don't think it would surprise anyone to say that Jesus loved people. We all know that. And I don't think it would surprise anybody to say that no one gets left behind. But if we live in the world of Jesus, we can see that Jesus really meant what he said. Jesus loved people, all people, and this could be a scandal. So today's story is the call of a tax collector to follow him. And while no one enjoys paying taxes today, in the world of Jesus, this means something quite else. So I'm going to read to you just a few verses of Scripture. This is Mark chapter 2, beginning with the 13th verse, ending with the 17th verse. It goes like this. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. And as he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, this is a call to follow story. It's a call to discipleship story. And we know this because it happens, quote, by the sea in verse 13. In Mark's gospel, the sea is a symbol. Uh, Remember that gospels are not merely newspaper reportings, but they're artful retellings with all sorts of devices. And in Mark's gospel, the sea is a symbol. It's a place of commissioning and it's home. My favorite verse in the whole Bible, and it it has been and continues to be of a thousand pages of Scripture, is Mark 16, 7. It goes like this. It's Easter morning. The tomb is empty. Frightened women show up. There's a mysterious person in the corner. Could be an angel. And he says this. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee, just as he told you. Now, go tell the disciples and Peter is my favorite part, I think. And Peter. Remember what Peter did just a few days before. He denied his best friend three times. Uh, And Peter means that Peter would be included with the band. And Peter means that he would be forgiven. And Peter means that he would be no Judas. And Peter means that very imperfect people, people with scars, people with a terrible history, are always saved by grace and can be called to follow by the sea. And Peter. Well, You know, if you were to take a Google Earth look at the Sea of Galilee, you would see that it's really not really a sea, but rather a lake. And I want to talk about this marker, the symbol, if you will. It's a pretty lake. It's the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth. It's seven miles wide. It's 11 miles long. Uh, It has the same surface area as Lake Martin near Birmingham, if if you know about that lake. Over half of the stories of the Gospels take place on the shore of the lake. It's just a little 10-mile arc on the northwest shore, and it's beautiful there. And it's also common to see rainbows. I'll tell you about that. In the winter and in the early spring, there's a lot of rain. It's it's pretty much the only rain that they'll get before the next winter. And it's very common to see a rainbow every day with mist on the water. A couple winters ago, I was riding up on the western shore of the lake, and I saw this big rainbow coming out of the middle. And I was so excited, I hopped out of the car and took a picture. And then I drove a little while longer, hopped out of the car, took a picture, drove a little while longer, 
hopped out of the car, took a picture to the point that when I was taken to the um, hotel in Tiberias, I ran into the to the lobby and I said to these young Israeli women, I said, do you see the rainbow? Did you see the rainbow? Did you see it? And they looked at me perplexed and I wondered if they didn't speak English. And then one of them said to me, do you not have rainbows at home? Which means that rainbows are an everyday occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. And I like that. I like that Jesus lived and he did his ministry in a place where they could look at rainbows. Well, the reason why the gospel stories take place on this 10-mile arc on the northwest corner is because near the shore there is where the water is shallow and algae-eating fish live there, like tilapia, who are caught with nets. Tilapia, carp, other algae-eating fish, they're caught with nets cast from the shore and dragged in or cast from a boat and dragged by the boat or even launched like a gill net, which I did with some friends a couple winters ago as we fished on that northwest corner of the lake. Just drop a net and come back, pull it up six hours later, which brings me to a, a funny memory. They have these Jesus boats that take pilgrims out on the lake that are really fun. It's just a big deck boat, but it's tricked out like a first century boat. And these these local Galileans all run them. All these fishermen run a Jesus boat, and they, they all look the same. They've regulated the price so that no one can undercut anybody. They've got a big space in the middle where the pastor can have a Bible and have a moment, which I do. I love to read the story of the stilling of the storm. You get a really pretty look at the shore and always a really pretty sunset every day, no matter what time of year. And so you're right out to the middle of the lake, and they and it's corny, and we sing the national anthem. And if we're from Alabama, we might sing Sweet Home Alabama and they've got a sound system. It's really, really low-tech fun. And what they will always do is one of these fishing guys will take a cast net and they'll throw it out into the middle of the lake. And of course, now I'm, I'm a seasoned veteran of these things. I know that the fish aren't there in the deep water, wink, wink. And they know I know that the fish aren't there in the deep water because we've all been fishing in the shallow part of the lake before. But a couple of years ago, we had a group, a tour group, and he threw the cast net out and pulled up three tilapia in the net and it scared him to death. They weren't supposed to be there, right? No one else, everyone else thought it was just a Sea of Galilee moment. Uh, when actually it was very, very weird. The reason why I tell you this is because the fish are in the shallows on the north northwest shore. This is where the people lived. This is where they worked, like Capernaum, and this is where they paid their taxes. Taxes. Capernaum was a convergence of sorts that made it a tax-collecting center. It was a village that sat on the shore of the lake so they could collect the catch tax there. It sat on a major road, the Via Maris, so so they could collect the commerce tax there. It sat on a border with another tax district so they could collect the last taxes before you leave. I'll give you an example. Bethsaida, which is the home of Peter, sits on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, and the Jordan River runs straight down the middle of the Sea of Galilee. But on the eastern shore of the Jordan, they were in a different tax district. So it's probable that Peter would move to Capernaum and move his business there to avoid double taxation. They thought about it all the time. And this this taxing world, uh, this this world of of, of giving uh, so much money to the government can also help us explore and explain a mystery of a little church that you can find today. Travel with me to the Holy Land, and I'll take you to a little church called Tagba, which is the traditional site of the feeding of the 5,000 uh, by Jesus with a few loaves and a few fish. That's that's the church. It's a modern church today, but they have restored, they've built it along Byzantine lines and have restored a 5th century mosaic floor. And that floor is a mystery. 
because if you look at it carefully, it's got lots of stuff on it that you can't find around the Sea of Galilee. It's got a crocodile and a lotus plant and something called a nylometer, which is like a measuring stick, so that the Nile River would flood the lower Nile and they would grow wheat uh, to, to feed the empire. Now, before I go any further with this, I want to paraphrase a conversation I had just a few years ago with a biblical economist who described the economy in the world of Jesus. He explained it to me this way. As Rome expanded, and as it, as it did some 150 years before Jesus, in, say, a place like Corinth, which would be burned by the Romans and then rebuilt along Roman lines, what the Romans would do is they would take vast amounts of booty and spoils of war, currency, slaves, you name it, and they would send them back to Rome, back to the West, if you will, to the point that in this early expansion, with all this destruction and booty returning to the capital city, there was an economic glut or a surplus of currency in the West. To the point, I've read stories of parades where the elites would throw pennies at the poor people, which means they were literally giving money away. But over the next century and a half, as Grain in Egypt became the breadbasket to feed this large empire that comprised the entire Mediterranean Ocean. I mean, it was the Mediterranean became the Roman lake, if you will. So that grain in Egypt in the east was purchased by Rome in the west to feed this expanding empire so that in time, all the currency left the west and began to be a surplus in the east. And it was an imbalance. Now I want to go back to the floor and Tagba and see if we can't begin to understand something. I think the Florin Tagba is another example of how we get religion wrong. We devalue the power of a gospel story, or we devalue what God is trying to say to us. Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish on the shore of the lake uh, because he wanted to show them or to prove to them God's generativity and love and care for their basic needs. It was not about a free lunch. It was not about a parlor trick to prove his existence. It was not about the bread and the fish. It was about the care of God for them in the everyday. And so what happened is this church, which was originally dedicated to this miracle, began to to think about or to pray about or have in the back of their minds the breadbasket of Egypt about about feeding or or about a, a good surplus of crops so the taxes won't be so high or about the government or something less than the miracle itself it become it's not about food is what i'm trying to say and yet they made it about food and this is an example of how we can take something that should be mind blowing and and domesticate it and make it and make it wrong god will not be put into our political boxes or our little boxes god is always wild and free and will talk to us at different places of our lives and at different times and in different ways but always prepare for god to be beyond something that we can understand well let me go back to taxes now for just a second and in the world of jesus to restore the balance from the economic surplus in east to the west and also to give the West new purchasing opportunities, they're going to have to have some more currency in order to buy more wheat to eat. You have to have taxes. Taxes return money from East to West. Taxes, taxes, the, the Near East, the world of Jesus, the place where Jesus lived and grew up and did his ministry was a river of Roman taxes flowing back from Egypt, back to Rome, so they could circulate that money uh, once and again and again and again, so that in the world of Jesus, the Romans would tax this. One, they would tax you every year. Two, they would 
tax your catch or your yield of crops. Three, they would tax your wagon or your boat or your ox that would pull it. Four, they would tax the road that you traveled on. I've heard a range, but tax rates could go anywhere from 50 to 80 percent, which means that people were just hanging on. I think when I was a little boy, I imagined people living under the boot of Rome in the world of Jesus, uh, that they would have hated Roman soldiers knocking in the middle of the night with their plumed helmets. That wasn't wasn't the problem. The problem would be taxes that would drive you off your land or or have you'd have children with empty bellies. And to add to this misery of Roman taxation, the tax collectors that they used were local people, people who should have been their neighbors and their friends, but now they're working for Rome, adding their own surcharge with great opportunities for theft and corruption. They were hated. And in this world, a man called Levi was called from his tax booth by the sea and asked by Jesus to follow. There is a mystery in the name Levi. We're told in Mark chapter 2 that he's Levi, son of Alphaeus. And then in Mark chapter 3, when they list the disciples, uh, there is a disciple called James, son of Alphaeus. Could be the same guy or, or cousin, perhaps. But then Matthew 9, verse 9, calls him Matthew, calls him Matthew the tax collector. So there are two possibilities around the name. One is the traditional explanation, and it's simply fine, which is that Levi had a double name, Levi Matthew. Uh, oftentimes we'll we'll hear stories or Bible stories refer to Levi or Matthew or interchangeable, just like John Mark or Simon Peter or Saul Paul. But I like another possibility. We tend to think of disciples as professional stained glass saints or a professional class of people or stories of disciples as stories about them. I, I think sometimes we do the same thing in my denomination in the Episcopal Church. People will come up to me and because I dress differently, I wear a black shirt, they'll come up and they'll say, well, Rich, what do we believe about something? And I'm like, I, well, I don't know. What do you believe, right? As if, as if I have the professional knowledge that I can simply dial it up on a need-to-know basis. What we see here is the call of Levi, who's just someone out of the crowds, which means that anyone can follow. Anyone with a past, any, anyone who's, who's experienced grace, anyone who's been healed, anyone who's ready, anyone who's got their mind right, Uh, can follow Jesus at any stage of their lives. And I really like this possibility. Well, there's another mystery in addition to the name. It's in in Mark 2.15. It's what happens next. He calls Levi from his tax booth, and then Levi invites him to his house, where Jesus, we're told in in this version of the Bible, uh, that he is sitting with tax collectors and sinners, and they are sitting at table. But if you have any study Bibles, you can look at the notes at the bottom, and you can see that the original word is that they were reclining at table. Now, there is a style of dining that was very common in the world of Jesus among people with means, people with money, and they would recline to eat. I can't imagine laying down and eating. I think I did it in college while watching television, and it didn't end very well. But it was common, and it and it was common amongst folks to recline to eat, just as it was common, and it still is for many people living in, in the Near East, to eat one meal a day. And if you're poor people, like the people living in Capernaum, you only rarely ate a meal with meat. Now, picture this. Jesus is reclining at table, just like rich folks, eating a big meal, just like rich folks, and it must have been quite a feast and quite a sight. And for the scribes and the Pharisees, this is just wrong, 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 wrong. In their world, meals confer status upon the guest or meals confer status upon the host 
you share your status with them. But these are bad guys. And so they're worried that Jesus, this rock star who's landed in Capernaum, maybe now is becoming one of them. He's becoming tainted by their badness, if you will. If they're outcast people, they're unclean. Their food is unclean, they are unclean, and they are rendering Jesus unclean. So Jesus answers them with a proverb that was well known to everyone at that, not original to Jesus. He said this, those who are well have no need of a doctor. And then he adds, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Two thoughts come to mind here. First of all, I think the Old Testament law is is something that we need to remember today. When I was a little boy, I, I refer to this all the time. I think we were taught that the Old Testament was something that, that we could discard, that Jesus came to start a new religion and to forget the old one. This was reinforced by something that happened to every fifth grader in the state of Alabama in my day. I don't think they could do this anymore. But every child in public schools in the state of Alabama got a Bible from the Gideons, and it was a little bitty thing, and it was called the New Testament and Psalms is if the only thing worth saving in the Hebrew Scriptures would be the Psalms. But Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to, not to abrogate the law, not to disqualify the law. Jesus came to clarify the law. Jesus came to make us Gentile-born people, children of Abraham. Jesus came to make, uh, make the whole story possible for us and to make the whole story accessible to us, I mean, there are lots of ways to see Jesus as a continuation of the story, uh, not a negation of the story. And seen in this way, law in the Old Testament can be summarized in this way. I love to use this example. It's like a great big umbrella. Think about a golf umbrella, a really big one, right? God's law is like a big umbrella that keeps us safe. It's wide and it's deep and lots of people under there. And if we ever step out from under it, which is our choice, then we'll get wet. God is not some celestial sheriff waiting to shoot us when we do wrong. We're the ones who step out from under the umbrella, and those who are self-righteous can't see whether they're wet or not. This is what Jesus is saying. It's kind of like that church floor in Tagba. We can be self-righteous and think we've got it all together, and we can keep our noses clean and think we're square with the Lord, and we can have it all, all wrong. The scribes of the Pharisees just couldn't see the magic that was happening new disciples were being made. The second thought I have comes in the form of a question somebody asked me. I have a Bible study with lots of great funny friends in there, and someone was asking a a story just in jest, but then in in time it became an important point. He asked me something like this. He said, "If, if a man accepts Christ on the last day of his life, does he get in? Does he go to heaven? I said, sure, absolutely. He gets in like the thief on the cross, right? Uh, yep, he gets in. He said, okay, well, let me ask you this question. If, if, a, if a guy accept Jesus Christ as Savior the last hour of his life, does he get in? I said, yep, yeah, I think it works that way. He said, okay, let me ask you this question. If a man accept Jesus the last minute of his life, and then I stopped him right there, said, look, I, I know I know where this is going. And, and the answer is yes, but I think you're presuming that somebody's getting away with something. I think you're presuming with this question that living a life away from Christ is somehow more fun than living a life in Christ. Um, I think I think that we get this wrong when we forget that a life in Christ is fun and it is more safe and it is more stable and a life in Christ is more life-giving and more noble and more healthy and even more real. A life in Christ is a life under the umbrella of God's grace, living and wondering and searching and finding and being saved again and again and again and again and again. It is the only way to live, and we can get in the game just like Levi. 
I love to think in stories, and I've got a story I'll close with that, that could literally be ripped from the second chapter of Mark's gospel. I was in my hometown not long ago, um, and I saw an old friend that I grew up with. I'm from Bessemer, which is a suburb of Birmingham, Alabama, which is an economically depressed suburb simply because there were no jobs after the steel industry left. And and, and there are many of us who, who live on, on the other side of Birmingham now, but we go back there and, and remember it fondly. And I was in a famous restaurant over there, and I saw a friend that I grew up with, and I asked Jack, I said, Jack, when do you think our church died? Our, our church, First Baptist, had disbanded years ago and had become two other local congregations so that the building, the church building of our childhood, has now been reclaimed and used by a very important rehabilitation ministry called the Foundry. Well, I meant that question just to think and wonder about when the demographics changed or when people sold the building or why they closed it, because I'd love to go inside and see it. And Jack said, which I think, I think that... Um, I think that our church died when the bus children had to sit in the balcony. Now, I'll explain. At First Baptist, we would have youth ministers who were interns, people on an ordination track, but we would use these young men to just simply drive our old school bus, which was painted with First Baptist logo on the side, to take us to youth rallies and ice cream after church on Sunday night. But one summer, we had this really earnest intern who really wanted to preach the gospel in an authentic way. And he wanted to go get the children from the mining community right outside of Bessemer uh, to bring them to church on a Sunday morning and to teach them Christ's love for them. And I blush when I think about the casual cruelty of children because I certainly joined the chorus. We snickered and we called them the bus children because this preacher, this young preacher man would pick up these children and bring them by bus and they would stick them up in the balcony. Our church had a balcony with big rooms. That way they wouldn't bother the nice, clean people downstairs, the the clean church people who knew how to hold a hymnal, when to stand, when to pray. We put the bus children upstairs so they wouldn't bother us. And my friend Jack said, I think this is when our church began to die. I was given the great privilege not long ago of preaching at the foundry. For someone like me who joined another denomination in college and then became ordained, it's rare to get to go back to your real home, the place where you really found Christ and the place where you really were baptized and the place, right, that's a, a different a different path or a different family of faith than the one you're in now. But I got to stand there in, in Old First Baptist, and I was thrilled. Oh, it's different now. They've got a rocking band uh, for the guys who in the who are in rehab? They got this uh, amazing uh, sound system, and they've got big speakers and a screen, and the pews are gone, and chairs are down there. But I was still in the bones of that building, and I was standing very near the place where I gave my life to Jesus and was baptized by immersion, and it was a thrill. And I told these men, I said, "Fellas, God is alive and well because the bus children are finally out of the balcony and down on the floor shouting hallelujah." Any of us can follow. We can all live again. We can all be safe. We can all go home by the sea. We can all be commissioned as disciples of the Lord, no matter where we've been or what we've done. And this is the power of the story. Thank you so much, friends. I hope we've given you a little bit of a new insight into the call of a tax collector. And if you join me next week, we'll talk about unclean. Thanks so much.